0: Welcome to Nessun Dormer, the 80s and 90s football podcast. This is the first ever episode proper of what we hope will be something you'll welcome into your lives like the comforting presence of John Gorman stood next to Glenn Hoddle. It's a podcast about old football that will bring you stories, characters and analysis from a simpler, perhaps uglier maybe, but ultimately a better time for football. I'm Lee Calvert and for this episode I'm joined by actual proper journalist person Rob Smythe of The Guardian and lots of books and things. Hello Rob. Hello, how are you doing? And also here is the below-the-line legend and guerrilla cl- cricket chap, Mr. Gary Naylor. Hello, Gary.
1: Hello, Lee. Hello, Rob. It's lovely to be here. <laughs>
0: uh, coming up in this episode, well, we couldn't be called Nessun Dono without having a bloody good look at Italian 90, so we'll do just that. There will also be a look at some players that we really miss and some other stuff we're going to talk about as well. This put a bit of admin out of the way, folks. This pod's available on iCast. It's on on iTunes. No, it's not. It's on Acast on iTunes. Please subscribe while you're there and tell all your friends to do the same. It'll be really helpful. It will also help us out if you enjoy the pod and what we're saying here to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You're not supposed to call it iTunes anymore. They get very upset, Apple, if you call it that now, apparently. Um, this is a conversation about football that we want you to be part of, so please get in contact with us. You can get in touch with us at Nessun Pod on Twitter, or I'm at Leroy Cal, that's L-E-R-O-Y-C-A-L, on Twitter. Gary, how do people get hold of you on Twitter?
1: At Gary Naila at 999. Nine,
0: nine. Gary Naylor 999, and Rob doesn't do Twitter, because he's a very sensible man. I can give you my postal address. <laughs> Letters. <laughs> so you yeah. can
1: go postal on your
0: own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no emails. It's only I there's a lot to be said for that. that people shouldn't be allowed to complain unless they have to write it down in Bayro and post it. That'd soon cut all the nonsense out.
1: Reading pan.
0: Yeah. So then let's get on with chatting about uh, the some eighties and nineties football then. So let's talk about what we miss about the game from the eighties and nineties. It's gonna be an on running thing, as we think of stuff, we'll talk about it. But uh, Rob, what do you miss about the game?
2: Um well, I've been thinking about uh, this in kind of World Cup qualifying week. I, I miss the whole kind of jeopardy of old football. So teams, uh, kind of no uh, seedings, no safety nets. So, for example, in um, 78, I think it was when Liverpool were champions of Europe and Forest were champions of England. They played in the first round of European Cup in September and Liverpool were out. That was it. No you know, no UEFA Cup, no group stage, no parachutes, nothing. I kind of miss that. And it's the same with the World Cup, actually, yeah. As I say, this Argentina struggling to qualify, but that was kind of normal in the past. Teams would have to work so hard to qualify. Even we're going to talk about Italian ninety later. I mean, England was so close to not qualifying, even though they didn't actually concede a goal in qualification. Hmm. Poland took the bar in injury time in the last game, and had that gone in, and had subsequent results in other groups gone the way they did, because it was the usual kind of complicated thing then England wouldn't qualified, which is pretty incredible, really. And the same with West Germany, who went on to win it. I think they were. One goal away from not qualifying, or two goals. So I kind of missed that, and I think we, we all know why it happened, obviously. But mm. it, it, it's a shame, and it do, it does compromise the kind of, for want of a less cliched phrase, the integrity of the sport.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I was uh, thinking about this. And I remember I was trying to dig out the quote from Berlusconi, and I found it. It was after it was in 1987. Napoli, Maradona's Napoli drew yeah. Butragueño's Real Madrid in the first round of the old European Cup in '87. And Berlusconi was watching, and being Berlusconi was absolutely horrified at the idea that a big team could go out. and His actual <laughs> qu- his actual quote was, the "European Cup has become a historical anachronism. It is an economic nonsense that clubs such as Milan might be elim- eliminated in the first round. It is not modern thinking." And so that thing is, he was right. <laughs> well, it was it. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's. That probably questions encapsulates questions? the entire past, I'm not trying to, I don't want to be a grumpy old man thing here, I'm just saying that's, it's interesting that that one quote probably encapsulates the entire Champions League thing, doesn't it? You
1: well, could that, just was behind. You- that was behind the Champions League, was to create or to head off the idea of a, a kind of European Super League, just in the same way as the the Premier League, when the FA broke with the Football League, to create the Premier League, was to... Avoid the specter of a kind of uh, super league coming up, so I mean they are they are business arrangements they 're not sporting arrangements sports arrangements have always been sort of one hundred and twenty eight in the hat, and you draw one from another, you play seven rounds, and the winner the winner wins, but um not anymore and I mean I agree with you, Rob um, I remember that uh, that match I think Bertles scored the uh, goal for Nottingham Forest, and um, you know the 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 interest was enormous. Uh, and uh you know the the jeopardy which is you know another string to my bow as i i review theater and jeopardy is absolutely critical in theater but it's being emptied out of sports uh to some extent i mean it's interesting it's still there in things like um american football and baseball and stuff like this where uh, they go into some uh, highly competitive kind of playoffs and stuff like that. But uh, but you're right, um, you know, the, the second group stage in the Champions League was a particularly disastrous idea, I feel. And um, you know, it nice not to have head-to-heads, yeah.
2: Is that gone yeah, now, the second gone. group stage? Yeah. That's long gone, yeah. They, it? I think they did that for about four years. And did, there was well, actually one consequence of that. The year Valencia lost around June the final, I think they played 19 games.
0: Yeah get to the final because then there were two groups plus qualifying rounds. I mean,
2: that's, that's a lot of games.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Forrest there. I think th- those seasons when they won the European Cup and, and the League Cup and they did well in every competition, I think they played the best part of like 72 games that season. Forrest. Yeah, presumably well, they've had like league semi-finals. Yeah, loads of replays and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, it was... Um, yeah. But yeah, it was interesting and, and reading about that time and we could probably discuss this in another, another episode because it does warrant a conversation of its own but... Um, I'd never quite realised until I read the books just how much Liverpool and Forest despised each other for that sort of five-year period. Yeah. They hated it. Well, Liverpool yeah. in particular hated Forest.
2: Yeah, they did. They really loathed each other. It's, it was for about four years. It was a great rivalry. It was the League Cup final. And I think Liverpool thought the penalty that won it was outside the box. And Correct. Yeah. Then Liverpool ended Forrest's unbeaten run, didn't they? A couple of months after Forrest put them out of Europe. That's right. It yeah, was, yeah, it was a, it was a it was kind of forgot. I like little rivalries like that. Leeds Derby would be another one involved in that doesn't last that long, three four years. Um, yeah, but it, I, yeah, there was it, a bit of there was a
1: bit of perch knocking off, wasn't there, in that Forest and Liverpool? Because Liverpool were very much cocks of the walk, and uh, Forrest, long before Alex Ferguson talked about knocking them off a perch, they were the ones who were who turned up the new kids on the block. And they almost play, played Liverpool football better than Liverpool did because they they drew the opposition on and they hit them on the break with the the pace of Wood of Woodcock and the uh, and the brilliance of John Robertson.
0: Yeah. So yeah, well, we could go on for hours on that, no doubt. We could, uh, and I'm, maybe and we will. And we, and we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure we'll we will, ladies and gentlemen, uh, have some uh, time spent with that going forward. What do I miss about uh, football from back then? Proper, edit, proper headers is the best way I can call it and I don't mean diving headers I mean you know those like really big headers from more than 10 yards out mm. and there seem to be more of them but like the, the last ones I remember doing it properly were sort of Alan Shearer and Les Ferdinand but I was watching a video on YouTube the other day and it was Spurs versus Forest from January 1989 and even Chris Waddle scored one he, <laughs> ran, he ran a full 25 yards from his position out on the right and suddenly arrived and boom into sort of the top left hand corner a Forest Wedding in 1989.
1: There's a header that Garth Crooks scored, of all people, at uh, Goodison, where the ball went in quicker than a shot. It was an absolute bullet header from Garth Crooks. I've looked for it on YouTube, can't find it, but um, anybody who was there won't forget uh, Garth Crooks' header at uh, Goodison.
2: Was that when they stuffed you 4-1 on the first day of the season? No, I don't think... (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I don't think it was that much because Clive Allen scored a hat-trick in that, so it would have to have been ah, okay. the other goal, but yeah. um, it was around you know, that that time. We also lost 2-0 at Villa in the next match, so we had zero points after two games and won the league with five games to spare. So it was quite a decent run in the middle of, those, uh, <laughs> of, of that
0: season. And, and also probably Ten a... in, we've already gone on to Everton. We have, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No doubt we'll come back to Everton 84, 85 and so on. There was a famous Steve Nicol goal, wasn't there, in Liverpool 87-88, I
2: think the first day of the season at Highbury, they won two-one, and he scored, I think, from outside the box. Uh, so I do know what you mean. It was particularly good when players would take that kind of, like you said about Waddle, like long charge, getting yeah. all the momentum from that. I suppose partly well, it's inverted wingers, isn't it? That's the one. I blame one. a lot on inverted wingers, but I definitely would blame them for this.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, It's a bit of. It,
2: but,
0: go on,
1: guys. Go, go on. The, the, the cross needs to come back so that the To get a really good header, it can't be a a kind of Beckham-type cross, which is hit in early, where the ball is already moving, if you like, towards the goal. You get get the kind of glancing headers from those, or you get the the redirected headers. But, I mean, the classic headers for me are where the the winger or the wide player has hit the byline, and the ball was arcing back towards the, the player, who then leaps and heads the ball into the into the net. Not so few corners now are any good, never mind uh, lead to goals. I think that's taken something out of it. I think the best player who does it today, and he is very much an old-fashioned centre forward, I think one of the few players who will be entirely at home in 80s football who is in the top flight is, uh, is Olivier Giroud at uh, Arsenal. I think he still scores old-school headers, but there are a few of them around, I agree.
0: Tim Cahill, going back to Everton, used to be a good oh. exponent of the big header as well, didn't he? <laughs>
1: Two goals today, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, I believe so. What about you, Gary? Do you miss anything from the old game? That you want to bring up? Yeah, this one? I'm going I'm to
1: turn a bit personal, really, because <laughs> um, I I don't uh, there aren't sort of lots of photos and stuff like that of uh, of my father here at home. But I I realised that. Uh, that soon after he died, well, how many years ago now, over a decade ago now, um, when I go to Goodison, I, I really think of him, and I, you know, I look to where he sat, and sometimes I'm sitting in the same seat as my uh, youngest brother, he still has the uh, the season ticket, and, and obviously the seat next to that one is the one that my, my father sat in. And so um, it's become quite important to me, and, and I'm looking forward to Everton moving to its uh, new location, which should be absolutely fantastic but it will be a real wrench to leave goodison because um of what it means to me in terms of how i remember my father and i also remember some of the uh, phrases that he used to come up with because these come to my mind over and over again and you know he 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 used to read the tabloids in terms of football, and he was not a man with a, a formal education, but he, he thought a lot about football and saw a lot of football. Mm. Um, he saw both 1966 finals at Wembley, for example, uh, Everton's 3-2 against Sheffield Wednesday, and then a, a matching them played against West Germany. I can't quite remember the score. <laughs> he was there amongst the Germans with their klaxons, he said, um, shouting when the Hurst's uh, shot went off the bar that it was a goal around him getting some uh, some staring looks, as I'm sure you can imagine. But, I mean, I've just come up with some of the, the three things that, that that come to mind. He had a, lots of things that he would talk about with football. Um, but I still find myself th- saying what he used to say. He, said, he used to say things like, you shouldn't need to look for a good midfielder. He looked for midfielders to be in the game. Hmm. And when one looks at people like N'Golo Kante now... I sometimes say to, to my boy, yes, but you don't need to look for N'Golo Kante because he's there in the game all the time. And it doesn't just mean box-to-box midfielders. It means midfielders who can control the tempo of a game, midfielders who can stamp their personality on the, on the game. And, you know, I still think today um, that... that I'm sure in the future we'll look at sort of the great midfielders of the '80s and '90s, and we will come up, and and Keane and Vieira there a little bit later, and Peter Reid for me, and stuff like this. But it's still the case that you shouldn't need to look for a midfielder. Um, about England, he would say over and over again. He would say that players aren't good enough. It doesn't matter who the manager is. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's standard. That's that's been manager.
0: standard for years. That. That's... <laughs>
1: in some ways it wasn't because when Sven-Göran Eriksson came in and then when Capello came in there was a sense that we had now that the the, the nous, uh, we, have, we have the coach who is going to to shape a golden generation or or use the vast resources that are available to to the English game to challenge uh, in tournaments but I mean, my father would say the players aren't good enough. And, I mean, he would refer back to, obviously, the, the 66 side with Bobby Charlton and Nobby and Styles and, and Ray Wilson, of course, the Everton fullback and so on. Um, but I I find and I've always found that the players aren't good enough. And, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll look at Italian 90. That was the 86 and 90 sides. With the closest I've seen to England having 11 players who were good enough, and in some ways they were unlucky in both those tournaments. But the players aren't good enough. And um, I remember him saying, and it's a bit of a parallel with Boris Johnson at the moment, he would say, got to Keegan, the England manager, because it's just going to keep going and going and going <laughs> until he gets the England manager. And of course he'll be a disaster, but you'll get it out the way. <laughs> and... Getting Keegan out of the way as an England manager, when you think back to, to all of the all of the hoopla around his appointment and, and stuff, then that was obviously a sensible thing. And all the stuff about Boris Johnson now is making me feel that you've got to make Boris Johnson the tour leader because you've got it out of the way. And the final thing I'll say, and it's been something that I've spoken to my brothers about with the Lukaku uh He used as set players, by which he would say that the the likes of Trevor Francis, the first million-pound player, was worth a million pounds. That Lukaku going for 75 million was probably, at least with hindsight now, and both my brothers thought at the time, although I didn't, that he was underpriced. That we should have held out for 80 or 90 million pounds. And he would say over and over again, perhaps Neymar is. Has changed this now, but the the very best players are actually underpriced, if you like. But there's that second and third level of player, which now I think are going for thirty or forty million pounds. Dare I say the likes of Guilty Sigurdsson? Another one of his uh, phrases that there are some players who can only play for one club, and maybe Sigurdsson can only play for Swansea. But the the likes of Sigurdsson at forty five million, he looks overpriced, whereas Lukaku at seventy five million looks underpriced. And he would always say, get the best players. They're worth it, no matter how much you pay. And I think that's being borne out even in the crazy market that we have today. In the 80s and 90s, the numbers were smaller. But, you know, Everton sold the golden boot, Gary Lineker, to Barcelona. He'd just been the golden boot in the 86 tournament. We sold him for 2.2 million. We should have sold him for 5, 6 million. And, um, you know, that would have rebuilt the side rather than bought Tony Cotty, who with all due respect... It's pretty much a pound shop, Gary Lineker.
0: It's probably an interesting thing to come back to at some point around. Was there value in the transfer market in the eighties and nineties compared to now? Maybe it's something we can have, we can have a look at. I mean, you know, the the to- literally towering thing that stands out around the most probably overvalued or badly valued players is Andy Carroll. Probably that's probably the most glaringly obvious thing I can think of recently of a player that uh, I don't understand where the value came from. Any thoughts on that, Rob?
2: I think the value came from desperation. Wasn't it deadline day and it just sold Torres? I suppose I can sort of see it with Carolyn that there is potential there for him to be unplayable. But but yeah, a club like Liverpool, he, he wasn't exactly...
0: Wasn't he kind of £7 million pounds more than David Villa who went the same year? That, oh, was always, the, that, year that was always the comparison that was made, wasn't it? Anyway, we're not talking about that. Well, that's, uh, so that's some stuff that we miss. If you want to get in touch with us at Nesson Dorma pod on Twitter, you can let us know stuff that you miss, and we can talk about that as well. Shall we talk about Italian 90? Because we can't have this pod without talking about Italian 90. So the Italia 90, uh, logo lo- that looked like a load of spearmint chew stuck together with a ping-pong ball on top. Um, what I didn't realise that I read up about this was that... Um, England threw their hat in to host this in 1983. They actually like put an app, whatever the equivalent of putting an application is in at FIFA. It probably comes in a briefcase, I imagine. Allegedly, but
2: I'd, I, yeah, <laughs> I'd like to have
0: heard that conversation with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. Um, the thing they withdrew quite quickly. Apparently, I think obviously because <laughs> yeah. quite quite a few things happened, didn't they? But, and, and England were put in... Um, England's group was in... Let's talk about England, I suppose. Is, well, I'll come back to England, but I just, I just want to make this point. England were put in a group in Cagliari because I'm assuming they were put on an island because of their fans, because they couldn't be trusted on the mainland to run riot if they could keep them contained. But one question I would like to ask, and I'd like to view off both of you, really, is what... It's... Popular memory dictates that it's a bad tournament. Was it as bad as everyone, as you're meant to believe it is, Rob? No, I don't think so
2: at all. I think it was a really dramatic World Cup. It wasn't entertaining in the kind of conventional sense and everyone always cites the average goals per game, I think 2.21. There were some awful games, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But I think in terms of drama and stories, which are two of the things that are most interesting about a World Cup, it had so much going for it. Also the location, I think it was perfect. Italy just kind of Around then Serie A was the best league in the world by a mile, and the whole thing just felt so important in a way I'm not sure any other World Cup has. I mean, part part of this of course is tied in with age. It's the first World Cup I remember properly, so yeah, I'm not gonna romanticise yeah. it. But I do think it had more kind of great stories per head than any other World Cup I can remember. And it was also I think a lot of the problem with the 1090s the final was so bad and so kind of miserable that it's coloured a bit of what's gone before. For example, two semifinals were excellent games, really, really good games. Argentina played brilliantly against Italy, which, again, people often forget. Quarterfinals weren't great, fair enough, but there were also great stories, Cameroon, Ireland, England, Argentina, West Germany, Scalacci. There's so much going on. And in a way, I, I would, you know, USA 94 had so many more goals, and I think USA 94 was a really good tournament. but it didn't have anything like the kind of drama and... And yeah, I don't know. I just, I just thought there was a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, I'm, i
0: I'm just it memorable. i similar with you. I think it's you can remember sport without the emotion, but it's no fun, is it? You know, I mean, if you, you know, I can't look back on Italia '90 without a significant amount of emotion because of one England, two my age, three. I always get the for me. It seemed to me like the first cinematic World Cup. Yeah, I know. You know you mean? Mean. Do you know what I mean? It seemed to be like painted in very broad, grand strokes compared to the kind of fuzzy picture from Mexico and stuff. What's your thoughts on it, Gary? Do you remember it? Do you have fond memories of it? Or Yeah, um, I,
1: I do. And, um, you know, part of it was the glorious sunshine in, in Italy and the and Dorma, the Puccini, sort of every time it came on the telly. It was a glorious summer here as well, which helped. There. Have you got Peter Story in the background? I've got four points that uh, that I've uh, considered. Um, I mean, I've read the stuff about the tournament, the average goals, and a lot of dull games, but they they tend to disappear in the background. You know at the. The older one gets, I'm a little older than both of you. The older mm. one gets, the, the less and less you remember the rainy days, and the, the stronger and stronger you remember the, the sunny days. And to me, it was a, a tournament of moments. You know, it's the it's the Roger Miller around the uh, corner flag. It's the it's Lineker pointing to his eye with uh, Gazza losing it. It's David Platt uh, goals. It's it it's Chilton trying to claw that ball out of the net as Andy Bramer's uh, uh, free kick goes over his head. I sometimes get World Cups mixed up, by the way, so Rob may come in and tell me it was '98 <laughs> or something. But, but it was it was a tournament of, of, of great moments, and the the further it recedes in history, the more those moments stand out of the of the at times uh, tedious background. Um, so. Another point uh, is that we had the most continental player in the tournament, and he was a chubby Geordie, and um, he was he was technically the best player in the tournament, in in my opinion. You know, Gaz's first touch, his ability to play with his head up, his picking of a pass—it I mean, was just unbelievable. For years and years, we'd had this. Issue with the lack of technical players, I and mean, we were being told all the time that you know it's the Dutch that we should follow, or it's the Italians, or it's the Germans. And we had the most continental player. Our boy in Gaza, and he you know, he was one of us. He was a working class lad, and everything that came with that. But the most continental player on the pitch was England's number seventeen? Nineteen. Gaza, number nineteen. 19? Yeah. But from and, my uh, point of view, was,
0: to pick up on that, that point about how his technical ability, what I always remember about Gaz was about yes, everything you've just said. But what game was it in where he did that sort of? It was like a really Geordie Cruyff turn. He had like two people oh, on him. And he, is it he Holland? Yeah. He, and he and he, and he kind of elbowed people out of the way. So he had that technical thing, but he also <laughs> had that ability to sort of you know bustle his way through people as well. There was that's what made him so charming. I think he was
2: brilliant. Yeah. Sorry, let go on. No, no, go on. Well, he 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 was
1: a physical player as well. I mean, at his at his best, you know, Gaza had absolutely everything you want an attacking midfield player. I mean, he was he was peer low without the good looks, the wine, and the sophistication. But my God, it was good.
2: You were Rob, saying, Rob? You, yeah, I think it was so rare even now, but certainly then, to see a central midfielder who could beat people in the middle of the pitch. Mm. And he did that, as you say, it was often using his strength as much as his skill. And it just broke the game open. He did it so often. Um, yeah, I think he's not necessarily the best England player I've seen, but I think he's the most exciting because it was so new. The way he did it, the character he had, the personality, the fact he wasn't scared of just anyone. Like he played against Mateus, Hullet, people like that. And Bobby Robson tells a good story about Holt. On the afternoon the Germany game, he's basically saying that you've got to follow Mateus, you've got to do this, blah blah blah. And Gascoigne is just kind of Gascoigne said, "I can hear you, boss." And apparently, Rob said to him, "I know you can hear me, but are you listening?" And of course, he wasn't. But he played
0: brilliantly against Mateus, who was the best, probably the best player in the world at the time. He wouldn't, Um, he wouldn't rest. What did Gascoigne apparently? Every time they told him to the afternoon off, he was he was running around like a lunatic.
2: Yeah,
0: Chris Waddle said used to. I think he used to go to John Barnes'
2: room partly because I like talking about tactics, and partly just to get away from Gascoigne because he <laughs> he said he was just a complete pain in the arse. There's a there's a, it, there's a clip it's, it's of affection.
0: yeah, there's a clip of Waddle being interviewed in 1990. I think, and at one point he does turn around and say, shouts Gazza, when you shut up?" or something because he's <laughs> he's stood there on a the balcony, and he's underneath them shouting and being complete. I, I don't think I don't think there's ever been a. I can't think of many players, and again, it might be because of my age, but even not really because even when you think about Euro '96 as well. I can't think of many players who simply just imbue so much joy from watching football. Mm. You know, I mean, there's probably a few people, think, but in terms of being an English lad and the memories of that tournament, I can't think of many other players who have given me that much joy, really. Well, it's, no. a, it's a
1: skill that you see in actors, either on stage or in, in movies, the, the ability to connect with an audience. And it's not something that can be taught. It's not something that uh, that you sort of follow a procedure you can do or you haven't got it. And Gascoigne had it on a football field. He could look at a lens or he could do something and he could react to it. And it immediately connected with not hundreds, not thousands, but millions of people watching. And you know what's happened to him is obviously a tragedy, and it's yeah. a tragedy that's played out before with other Great footballers, we can all name them, I'm sure, and it'll happen in the future. But in that golden summer, and for a golden period of four or five years, he was just fantastic. Now, there's a linked point that I'm going to make in a, in a moment, but um, Lee, cue me in for it when you're ready.
0: Okay, Tom. In terms of the wider England team, there's some. I mean, there's, there was just the, the, the stuff on the part. There's, there's some great stories about that that team. There's one. There's a clip on YouTube, you can find it, where Nigel Kennedy, do you remember when Nigel Kennedy somehow somehow became a, a person, a, a prominent person in popular culture despite being a violinist? It was really odd. It was a funny sort of period. He was in the charts. Always turned up
1: in an Aston Villa scarf. <laughs> I
0: think was it was just because he had like a, he looked a bit like a university lecturer with a spike. So basically people thought that he wasn't. But anyway, and his accent changed, didn't he? But he went from being this very plummy guy, this really brummy guy in about five years, but that's, that's an aside. And he came to ent- entertain the, the the England squad and the cameras are there to watch it and, and it's really great because they're all looking slightly bemused but it in the back of the shot all the way through is Brian Robson who looks not just bemused <laughs> but you can see him transitioning to looking like actually visually angry by the end of it like why am I being forced to watch this absolute shit basically I'm imagining <laughs> so there's probably stuff and then there was the one you showed us Rob the race night thing as well oh yeah I think was it Liddick and Shilton with the bookies and they've got these
2: videos <laughs> sent in. And I think Fred Street, the physio, tipped Gazza off beforehand. There was a twenty to one shot at the one and of course it's a great video because you can just see particularly Shilton, the mounting horror on his face. Because was like, really hamming out going, <laughs> Yeah, because
0: <laughs> Shilton's incredibly tight, wasn't he, as well. So it was
2: like a Yeah, I think Lytica, yeah, Lidica was the other bookie as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. And Ga Gascoy's like just hamming up as much as he can.
1: You know, they, they used to um get these in holiday camps in Pontins and Butlins in the 70s i think they used to arrive on a on a big kind of disc and they were horse racers that were from Australia, yeah, they're
0: pre-recorded or USA. like the Kentucky and, Derby. And, and stuff, yeah,
1: yeah. You, you'd have a kind of totalizer, or you would have a, a a bookies afternoon, and you'd you bet on horses because, of course, there were only three television channels then, so um, the horse racing wasn't on. But thousands of people would sit drinking Watney's Red Barrel, and um, <laughs> and uh, well, hundreds in the room to be fair, but thousands across it's, the country. It's, it's how and, you imagine, uh, and we're bet on these horse races that were recorded
0: from sort of you know, sort of k- rural Kentucky. Yeah, I, what I like is is that no matter what the technology is of what period, footballers are the most boring and unimaginative people in their <laughs> use of it, aren't they? What should we do? We've got to tell in the video. Let's have a race night. Let's play cars. Now they've got you know Instagram. They just post pictures of themselves going shopping, or they just watch Netflix all day, don't they? There's nothing. Eating there. Nando's. Or their Twitter
2: account gets hacked.
0: Yeah. Or they or the or they tweet drunk. <laughs> but I think I think a lot yeah. of them pay people to do it now, don't they? But um. Yeah. Yes, there was
1: something else about Gaza though, on, that was that was different about Italia '90, and I can't think of a, of many England players before or after. Is that Gaza repeatedly and and Lineker, to a certain extent, and there was one or two others, maybe Michael Owen for a short period, but they played their best football in the biggest matches. They didn't freeze. You know, they 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 were they were us as we imagined ourselves to be out there if we could do it that's what we would be doing yeah i think some of the disconnect with the england team at the moment is is we see these players who are who are frightened and we see these players who are within their shelves and we think well if we were there we wouldn't be doing that we'd be running at them. we'd be going for it
2: we'd be Trying everything, we, we, we just look happier. I think you <laughs> just don't forget, though, that, that I agree with you, but at that point in time, we were having exactly the same conversation about Barnes, Waddle, and to a lesser extent, Beardsley. Now, whether it was fair or not, I don't know, but it was all that was always discussed, wasn't it? Why don't they
0: do it for anything like they do for Liverpool, Spurs? Barnes, in particular, but, got a hell of a time. Well, he's, he's the yeah. kind of he's the key, he's the, the boring writer's. Unimaginative writer's reference point, isn't he? For anybody you want well, to say who doesn't perform on the, the international stage. With,
1: the big problem with John Barnes is he scored that goal in the Maracanã if he'd not scored that goal he wouldn't have got so much stick but the problem was he set the bar so high with that goal in the maracanã but particularly with its location and against brazil that he was constantly being expected to live up to that live up to that as well as as being brilliant week in week out for for liverpool um so yes there, there was certainly a, a bit of that i think uh, waddle was a notch or two below john barnes as a player but um, he still got a bit of uh, a bit of stick
0: got a as different, well. got a different view on that rob <laughs>
2: Well, uh, probably, I, I mean, Waddle did more overseas and slightly more international tournaments. Having said that, Barnes was very unlucky. I think it's important, generally tactics kind of weren't discovered until the late 90s, but 4-4-2 was a big problem for Barnes and Waddle because it wasn't like the two midfield players would be what we now consider holding players. It was, in the World Cup, it was Gascoigne and Robson and then Gascoigne and Platt. So I know they went to a sweep system, but for most of their in the career, they're playing in a 4-4-2 and... They hated that. If you read it all played out, Waddle in particular is so kind of almost angry about it. He, or actually, no more, just fed up, constantly chugging up and down the wing. Mm. And actually, I, I watched a Germany game, West Germany game, a while ago. Waddle played central midfield in a, a 5 3 2 or 3 5 2, and he was tremendous. Played as an orthodox central midfielder, and he was absolutely tremendous. So, I don't know. It's, it's a shame that Robson didn't try to sweep her earlier. I
1: saw John Barnes play central midfield quite often for Liverpool against um, Everton which was a huge game at, at that time and Barnes was just fantastic playing in the middle mm. he didn't always play wide you know, and I well, think sometimes well, we get the idea that, that 4-4-2 meant that the same players played in each of those positions but he players would we'll move think. around
2: I'm not sure they did with England personally. maybe, so not, the, with
1: England. maybe not with England Liverpool through the middle quite often
2: well, around the 90, they were playing. He was playing Robsonn like Barnes up front with Linacre a little bit. I think he started up front against Belgium actually and played okay. Had a good goal disallowed. Um, so actually, but he was
1: old player. He was a player that had, had to be running from midfield. He was he was a ten rather than a nine.
2: Yeah, probably. But he was playing and he did it a bit for Liverpool as well that season. You're
0: right. He was playing alongside. I'll, I'll just go for like Russell Linacre. so I'll just make one a couple of points about that. One. Um, before we talk about the England squad. Um, Barnes finished his career in centre midfield for Newcastle, of yeah, course, as a, a yeah. holding player, when he was properly pot-bellied and everything. And, mm-hmm. and, if, and if Waddle had played more in the middle, imagine how many 25-yard massive headers he would have scored. <laughs> That's what I'm most disappointed about. So, yeah, while we, so, while we we'll talk about England, I think that you made raise a point before, Gary, about England squads. I thought I'd like to ask the question, is that that squad, and when you look at that squad... I'll be very quick. Shilton Stevens, Pierce, Webb, Walker, Butcher, Robson, Waddle, Beardsley, Lineker, Barnes, Paul Parker, Chris Woods, Mark Wright, Tony DiRigo, um, Steve McMahon, uh, David Platt, Steve Hodge, Paul Gascoigne, Trevor Stevens, Steve Bull, and, um, David Seaman and Dave Besant. And obviously, is that, well, a bit swap, uh, Seaman replaced Besant, didn't he? Or was it the other way around? Can't remember. The other way around, yeah. yeah, sorry, yeah. But was, sorry. You, is that the best England squad that we've no. had in the past? Not, not no, ever. The 86, not the
1: 86 ever. squad was better. Okay. The 86 squad, what you've got to remember about the 86 squad is that they had a, a difficult start to the tournament, and then when they needed to deliver, and Rob will have the, the detail at the forefront of his mind much more than me, I think it was they beat Poland 3 0, and I think we were 3 0 up at half time. Um, in the last group game and then what you have to re- remember as well about that 86 side, and not only did they have four Everton players in it, but <laughs> they um, but they, we lost to Argentina in the uh, and we lost to the famous hand of God goal, and we lost to one of the greatest goals ever scored, and we certainly lost to one of the greatest players in my opinion, the greatest player uh, ever to play the game uh, in Diego Maradona, so I mean it was a bit we were unlucky in eighty six we were We got close to beating uh argentina um who were who were Maradona side, but they were no mugs. The other ten players were no mugs by any means who who won the tournament at a canter. Um, literally, uh, Maradona cantering through Belgium in the uh, so, in the semi final. Okay, um, so you're, you're we, were unlucky, we were unlucky in '90 as well. We lost the game to the eventual winners, West Germany, and we lost on penalties. So that was close. Both those squads got very, very close to winning, to certainly playing in a World Cup final and arguably winning a World Cup. We've never been anywhere near that since. But for me, the '86 side was ahead. Lineker won the golden boot. We had a real sharp point to the side, and we had good overlapping fullbacks. Uh, we had Trevor Steven one side, of course. I remember the the England players, but we came up against Maradona, and he was going to beat anybody, any team in world football. Probably at any time would not have survived Maradona because so, he scored goals from anywhere on the pitch, and all he had to do was keep it to one or two against, and Maradona would get two or three essentially on okay, his own. Okay,
0: so that's. I, what about you, Rob?
2: I think ninety. Well, I think I. I should have a nod of respect to the 96-98 squads who were really good. I think had Shearer not done his cruciate in 97, after which he was a brilliant goal scorer but a reduced player, I think they would have had a great chance in 98. But I think 92 were better for... One main reason is they were just better in defence, because 86 England had Fennec playing centre-half against Argentina. Now he should have been sent off maybe eight times, a conservative <laughs> estimate. Ran,
1: yes. Most centre-halves would have been...
2: England in had day. in 90, England had Butcher obviously played in both, England had Walker, who I think... We'll probably get into an all time England 11 and Mark Wright playing the best football of his career. They also had Gascoigne, we discussed. But I think the, the key is, personally, I just think the defence was a lot better in 90. Walker was a magnificent defender who could have played for anything in the world in his peak. Chilton, but Chilton was, was good, better in 86. Yeah. Yeah, but I think Walker for Fennec, I, I, I don't have it in for Fennec, but on a, that, that quarter final, he he could have been set up so many times. Um, I think 90, having said that, I was young in 86, so I didn't watch the games properly, I don't know. Uh, I think 96, 98 were really strong as well. They had proper a proper spine. People like Adam Gintz, yeah. Shearer in 96, seemed, of course, a great goalkeeper 99.9% of the time. But I would probably say 90 on paper. I don't think the depth is great in 90 if you look.
0: Well, if you look at that first, first place playoff game who'd be turned out in that team, you do, sound, you do kind of gnash your teeth a bit, don't you? But the first
2: kind of, 14 to 16 were really good. Can I just, one little myth about Italia 90 is that mm. um, Dave Besson should have come on for the penalties against Germany. A lot of people say that uh, he couldn't have done because in those days you only had five subs and Chris Woods was a
0: sub. So. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Myth put busting. A put Can I a uh, put
1: a, grit, a bit of grit in the oyster because maybe we'll cover Wait. this in a, in a future, uh, future uh, podcast. But, um, the, uh, oh sorry, the England 96 uh, squad, in terms of players and in terms of matches, we really only played, I think, about 45 minutes of good football, which is either side of half-time against okay. Holland, where we but destroyed to
0: I'm going gonna, gonna to pause you there, Gary. There cause,
1: cause terrible <laughs> matches in that tournament.
0: I'm gonna I, I, and it was won by the weakest
1: West Germany side in, in my lifetime.
2: Did you um, not say so the same about Italia '90? Apart from the weakest Germany side, England played well against Holland and against Germany in both tournaments, and kind of blundered through a lot of the other yeah. stuff. as much as we love them,
1: right? They, they, they came back against Cameroon well in Italia '90. I mean, they were I, up against it. Oh no, they, they were up against it.
2: Yeah, they did, but, but ninety, maybe hundred minutes, they were battered in that game. They, they were. I watched it again recently, short. and they were slaughtered. Yeah, they were, but they showed such
1: heart, and we were watching it and and this is another one of my other points about Italian ninety We were watching it with a sense of disbelief because even people from my generation, the generation before me just couldn 't believe that England could lose to anybody because you know we invented the game and all that palaver. but my generation an African side taking on England it was just you know it was a, it was a gimme, so to see. Um, England being outplayed by Cameroon, or as they were often called the Cameroons, I don't know why, <laughs> um, was 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 remarkable, and it was it's, a it was a wake up call, literally it was really, a wake
2: up call. There's a good story about that game. Howard Wilkinson was one of England's scouts, and Cameroon, I think, had four players suspended, and he told Bobby Robson basically, "You've got to buy." And Robson told the team, and he said, "I know I shouldn't be telling you this. I know I shouldn't be telling you this, but Howard says blah blah blah." And of course, with four men suspended, they slaughtered England. Shilton was so good in that game, um, and there's, I agree. with did show Gascoigne in particular, and Lideker and a few others. But yeah, they they were lucky. Even yeah, in they, extra time, they were lucky. There's a yeah, great They story. were, they there's were a, lucky.
1: There's a great a story. Then. came in. Uh, you know, they they, they got yeah. the, the penalty, and there was yeah. a bit of experience there.
2: That's true. That's a, true. Lidic
0: was great. There's a great yeah. story. Getting the penalties, no one Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a great story about that. And after the Howard Wilkinson thing, when they came out into the tunnel, uh-huh. and uh, they were all both teams were lining up. And and apparently one of the things that struck England so much was how tall Cameroon were. They were like almost like some almost like a basketball team, uh, most of them. And Stephen, remember Stephen Tato, the captain, he was about six foot three. And there's this whole anglophone francophone i don't know much about the cultural history of Cameroon, but i do know there's an anglophone francophone thing some speak english some speak french and they were doing this thing with, and they used to sing they were singing a song in the tunnel and bobby robson's shouting thinking that they don't understand what he's saying look lads they're frightened of us they're singing they don't know what's going on and apparently tato this giant just looked down at robson and said mr robson we always sing before matches we are not frightened of anyone, sort of thing. And Robson just kind of looked totally terrified. But while we're on well, it camera, a, while it we're was on. At a sorry, time Gary. When,
1: when, if you were six foot tall, you were you were a giant. You know, people talk about sort of Terry Butcher's giant centre half. I bet he's only six foot, six foot one. And that Cameroon side, I remember them being so tall. If you, I mean, I'm not here sort of using cultural stereotypes, but you know how. When the camera pans on Paul Pogba and he's in the uh, and he's in the tunnel and he's thinking, God bloody hell, he's a big guy. That's what it was like with Cameroon. You looked at them in the tunnel and oh, they were big guys, and that sort of got the fear going a bit as well. Um, which leads me into a point because I don't want to lose this, Lee, because mm. we've been skirting about it in in a few uh, different ways. Um, again, I think I'll, I'll claim a bit of uh, age here for special knowledge <laughs> in the, this. Italia 90 was the first tournament that was really experienced collectively. Um, I remember watching matches in uh, Bar Italia in uh, Soho. Uh, I'd go down there, a huge group of people all trying to get in, and we were standing in the street in, I think, Frith Street, isn't it, uh, Bar Italia, and I was looking overhead onto big screens, because it was times when pubs started to get big screens. Um, I watched uh, matches in the Lachmir in in Battersea, and... um, it was it was a time where where watching football in a pub was was not really all that common. Pubs didn't really have televisions, and they certainly didn't have uh, televisions tuned to football. If anything, they had the occasionally the horse racing on. But big bigger screens started to arrive. Nothing like the size of the screens now. But it, but you went out with your mates and you had a few pints and you watched football in the pub, which since Obviously, since Sky, but even before then, it has become commonplace. But but Italian 90 was the first time I remember regularly saying, "Well, shall we go down the pub to watch the game?" Mm-hmm. And that collective element, I think, was important in the kind of mythology of Italian 90 because you weren't sitting at home, sort of drinking Watney's Red Barrel and throwing <laughs> popcorn at the screen as uh, another free kick sailed over the bar.
2: You were with your mates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. It is, I, yeah. I was a bit too young. I, I had lots of choices. Basically, watch it in the bedroom or watch it in the lounge. Was about my. <laughs> Could you
0: not? But, get, I, but I do take a point. It's a really good point. Could you not get someone to get you some cans? <laughs> even though you're fourteen. Of- a four-pack of Vinto, because it, back then, yeah, but back then, of course, alco pops didn't exist. You had to suffer if you wanted to drink young, didn't you? You had to drink something yeah. that tasted awful. But anyway, yeah.
1: So, and, and there was one related point about it, and to me, uh, I've left it to last, but it actually, is my most important point about Italian ninety, is that it was it was just over a year, I think, after Hillsborough, and it was at a time when when um, there were the ID cards uh, for football fans and, you know, football fans had a... Had a bad reputation, and some of that was well earned. And if you know, you don't need to read the hooli porn stuff or to have been around to know that football hooliganism was real, and it was frequent, and it was unpleasant. You could stay out of the way of it if you wanted to, as as I did, and lots of people uh, did do. But the threat of it was always in the air. But Italian ninety did something; it made you feel good about being a football fan. You could talk to people without apologising. You mm. you didn't get people looking down the nose at you um, women talked about football a lot of women uh talked about Scalacci because he was the pin-up boy and he obviously had a lot of personality and was he- about as Italian as you can get without being sort of Al Pacino and um it made you feel good about being a football fan for the first time certainly probably in my life because I started going to football in the early '70s, and there was lots of hooliganism then, and the the, the, uh, the trains getting smashed up, and everything else. But Italian '90 was a turning point. It was a cultural turning point, and the kind of Nick comes after it and stuff like that. But it was a chance, and of course, you've got when Saturday comes and the fanzine stuff. But it was it was that it was the the tipping point where you could be a football fan and you didn't need to apologise for it. And you could find other football fans, and you could talk about it without guilt, and it, that was really important part of the Italian ninety. Okay.
2: You got to say something there, Rob? No, yeah, I think that's completely true. But one thing that's interesting, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Lee, is that I was 14 during that tournament, and I'm only aware of all that subsequently. At the time, but I loved football. My mates at school loved it. I wasn't. I'm only aware, looking back, just how kind of socially unacceptable football was. And I, I found it quite interesting that that at the age of 14, I
0: wasn't aware of that at all. I
2: wasn't... having said that, I did go to a boys' school, so you
0: know. Well, I was, I was aware of the hooliganism. I mean, the thing with me is I grew up in a rugby league town, so actually I didn't go and watch football. I went to watch rugby league, which has some problems of its own and not other problems of its own as well. So I didn't really go to football. I was aware... Everyone was aware of but Everyone was aware of Heisel. Oh, yeah. Everyone was aware of all the other stuff and the kick-offs that regularly used to happen. And I remember going to... a I went to watch Oxford United versus Man United in like 1988 or something. Would that have been a fixture? That's a memory yeah, I've yeah, got. Would,
2: yeah, Eight, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, mem- I think they went
0: down. Yeah, and I remember seeing the, the cages and stuff and being a bit, because I came from rugby league, you know, it was it was a bit of a sort of thing. So but what I do remember about it is I remember after the tournament, I remember it was the first time that football, unofficial and sort of, Jekyll football merchandising became a thing because I, I went to, I'm from Lancashire, so I went to Blackpool with my family and, and everywhere was selling t-shirts with a really dodgy print of Gazzer on and stuff yeah, like that. It was the first time point. I can remember like a big load of merchandise come, coming out of it. And I think tapping in, it was a huge cultural change. I agree with that. And tapping into that as well. I think a lot of people have an opinion that it was a bad tournament because so many fundamental things changed after it. The back pass oh, rule came the back in. Pass law,
2: yeah. yeah,
0: the tackle from behind was outlawed in what year was that? 19 whatever it was.
2: I, they started to push it after '90. I don't think it happened until Van Basten was right. forced to retire. But yeah, it was. But it was on the. Um,
0: but I think that feeds into the, the collective memory. Is this thing that well? It must have been really crap because they introduced yeah. all these things to make football better afterwards. And it somehow seems that football got better afterwards. So it seems like it's this seminal few weeks in the history of football. So it's really. It's quite yeah, strange. I think,
2: a, I think that's an excellent point. It, did, it was a line in the sand. And, and there were some terrible games. And there were some negative games. I just think there weren't quite as many as people remember. And as Gary said, there were great moments, great stories. I mean, even just quickly, the second round, the second round, last 16, when you know no big team should go out in the last 16, in theory, yeah. and you have Brazil against Argentina and West Germany against Holland on the same day.
0: <laughs> oh, I mean, on. Yeah.
2: And then you obviously have and Vola um Brazil Maradona the biggest smash and grab in the history of football on Brazil who slaughtered Argentina, absolutely slaughtered Maradona him, yeah. there's a great bit when Maradona did he he beats. He doesn't quite beat seven players, but he makes progress through seven players, and he breaks the first wave. And you can see the three defenders, and they just suddenly think, "Oh shit!" And <laughs> like ten years just come into their head of what Maradona could do to them, and they end up. Two of them end up running into each other. They're so discombobulated, they just run into each other, and then, of course, plays it through. Can really good finish? And I just think to get that in the second round, that level of intensity and drama, and of course, Ricardo comes back to your thing about moments. And wow. uh, I'm not saying we condone
0: <laughs> spitting in another was That was... That was it, it, but you'll remember it. In, in terms of football history, it was the most beautiful catalogue of shithousery you'll ever see from a player. <laughs> from from a really nice human being. Yeah, it was so against type. I mean, it was. It went in about... There was like four acts to his shithousery, wasn't there? There was the kind of... <laughs> it was, was it the tackle, then the spit, then he stood on his foot, then he pinched his ear, then he spat at him again yeah. and stuff.
1: Well the I remember watching it live and live you didn't really know what had happened until the replays came. And then he had Rudy Boller, I remember <laughs> described with his Mrs. Slocum haircut, which I thought was very good. But we're all desperate. We're all desperate for the German to be the villain. You know, especially <laughs> Yeah, yeah Rudy what did he Voller. get
0: sent off for? We still don't I know mean, what he got I, sent off for. And
1: for the Dutch, the glorious Dutch with those great triumvirate of Milan players, uh, there and we wanted them to be to be the the the, the good guys you 're just watching Reichardt. you think oh that 's bad. he should have sent off for that and then another angle comes in, oh, he oh, should have gone for that as well oh, oh and it was just terrible it was like it was like um, it was it was like seeing i don 't know your, your your hero um, doing a Harvey Weinstein into oh plant yeah. <laughs> something. It was what? it was just.
0: I want to horrendous. talk. About, I want to talk about the second round and characters a bit more. But I'll just finish off on the on that that particular incident by leaving it to the to Jack Charlton's view on it.
1: <laughs> Apparently, he spit on him. Yeah, he did. That's what it seemed to be mm-hmm. And and then he spit on him again. I mean, I would have said, I would. I, if he'd have spit on me, I'd have chinned him. <laughs>
0: That's a 1970s Leeds Defenders approach to dealing with problems. Yeah. He, he wouldn't have even made it into the Black Book. He would have dealt with it before he put his name in the Black Book. <laughs> done, yeah. But the point about this thing about characters, if you look at the second round, you look at the games, right? Cameroon beat Colombia 2-1. That had Roger Miller playing... And, and let's talk about Roger Miller a bit, okay? I re-watched some of the games, and because I was young at the time, I didn't have that much of memory. Rewatching it over the years... He's a remarkable player. He, and, and and the biggest testament I can give him is that I don't know which foot is his actual foot when you watch him play. <laughs> That's always a good sign, I think.
2: And and another good sign is I'm not sure exactly what position he played. Which, Absolutely, going back yeah. to the straight lines that we used to have in those eras, I, I watched the England game and he he's like, I hate to use the expression false nine, but he was like that in 1990 when it was unheard of. He drops in all the time, really good technically, lots of give and goes, beats players, and can finish. I, thought, I was really shocked, genuinely shocked by how good he was, because I thought it was just like a nice story. He roofed a few, you know, leathered it past the keeper, robbed a and so on. But he was miles better than I remembered.
1: Yeah, um, he, I think there was either a commentator, or again, it may have been someone who just shouted it out in the, in the pub, but... Um, so he's coming on to old Manit, you know, sort of, you know, get a kind of valedictory sort of turn around the pitch, this icon of, uh, of yeah. African football. Because he was he was said to be 33, but there were rumours that he was sort of 38 or something like that. No, this. he was officially 38. Was he officially 38? I well, think, he might have been rumoured to be 43. And he
2: something. was 40, and he scored at USA 94 when he was 42, yeah. but I, I, and, I, sorry, And he on. came on, and he had as you say he had this wonderful
1: balance he played all over the field tremendous technique and and for those who wonder what he played like um he almost played like uh like kind of force of nature in the way that the the Brazilian Ronaldo played when he was at kind of PSV he would pick the ball up on the halfway line and run towards the goal and kick it the net like <laughs> can't, can't everybody do this but um but he really was an extraordinary, and of course he was such an engaging character. Again, he was one of those people who, through television, could communicate with people. There was a joy, and there was a, there was a, 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 a surprising element. He was surprising himself, I think, as much as he was surprising the audience. And yeah, I mean, in the I didn't have a school play, playground, but I was 27. I was working in the in the West End in. Uh, in uh dorothy perkins in the buying office i was working in women's fashion would you believe um but we were all talking
2: about we were all talking about roger miller the next day who is he well, well this guy's fantastic one of the goals against romania he basically makes for himself i think he heads up in the air or something and he's bouncing around and he just thinks i'll oh, stop this runs 20 yards knocks it past the defender and then leathers it into. It, it,
0: and it's even more amazing him. one not just his age. But he was retired, I think, was it you telling yeah, me you know? he, he was yeah. retired and living in the Reunion Islands, which makes it Recruiting an even more even more yeah. brilliant
2: story, by the way. I think I think the president persuaded him out of retirement. Because so, he played in 82 when they were a good side then. He um, mm-hmm. was already past 30 by then. Um, <laughs> yeah, extraordinary. <laughs> and then some other good players. Mackinacchi was quite a nice player. Omanbeek um, was quite O-M-B- good. Omanbeek was, was a good player, yeah. Yeah, he was um, good. And a handful. And then, of course, Massing, who everyone...
0: Benjamin Massing. of their lives returning, yeah. What I love about name, Benjamin right. Massing, when he gets sent off, Stephen Massing, oh. is it Stephen or Benjamin no, Massing? Benjamin. Benj-
2: yeah, Benj- yeah.
0: When he got sent off for doing the most heinous act of GBH, he then like, he claps his hands above his head as he's walking off as if he's done yeah, something yeah. outstanding, <laughs> you know, as if, he, as if it's like he's been tuddled off as a yeah. glorious conqueror, which he was in a way, I suppose. There's another great bit
2: in that red card When he, butchers Canadian he loses his boot, yeah. and there's a bit of a malay, and one of the Argentinian players, I forget which one, comes over, and he has this lovely, sly look over his shoulder, for where the referee is, and then just stamps down, and a <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's the best part, it's not that it's just a sly look, just to make sure. <laughs> and while we're on Cameroon, Everyone must remember. Do you remember the referee in the Cameroon England game and the way he singled for oh, penalties? Tra-
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. He did like a double... Whistle, he always yeah. like
0: I'm, I'm a Catholic person, he always joined his hands together like in prayer then sort of pointed it towards the goal, didn't he? There <laughs> <laughs> did was see? a bit of
1: Billy, Billy
2: Bowdenism going yeah, on. There was a the bit of Billy Bowden about, about it. He to the, did the final as well, I think he was. Was he really? And there was some controversy because I think... Does he live in Argentina? Is his dad Argentinian or something? <laughs> but, uh, apparently, Argentinian people absolutely hate him because obviously he sent two of them mark and
0: gave a penalty. I think so. I might. If I'm wrong, then. But that. So, while we're on the second round, and it's interesting to look at the second round actually, because Cameroon played Colombia, and I think that was probably the first time the world got a good look at Higuita and Valderrama. Was it? Because Valderrama well, playing Yeah, I, mean, we've
2: seen, I think the group game. Not all the group games were live actually. I remember. When Brazil played Sweden, West Germany walloped Yugoslavia four-one in the first game, and that wasn't live; it was just highlights half-time. So it wasn't like now. So you might be right, but yeah, certainly we wouldn't have seen them before. Actually, they played they played at Wembley in eighty-eight or eighty-nine, but obviously the world doesn't revolve around Wembley.
0: No, and this is the. But that's a really important
1: point, though, because that's one of the points that I wanted to make that I think um, shows Italian ninety or it glows a little in the memory. Because I think that was the last World Cup in which the players were all, well, lots of players were unknown. By 94 and obviously by 98, we knew who these players were. But in in Italia 90, unless you were really keen and really following the the foreign press, um, you didn't know who... Who any of the players really were, um, who were not either playing in England or you hadn't seen in the in the kind of final rounds of the European Cup. You probably knew Mateus, you probably knew Klinsmann, but not many others. And certainly you didn't know the Africans, and you didn't know a lot of the South Americans. We only got Italian nine. Uh, we only got Serie A. Um, on uh, the Square Real, the old BSB Square reel, because <laughs> I, I had it. After Italia 90, there was no Italian It was Italian
2: on Channel 4 before. before. I think it was on no, Channel 4 before there. I've got, it wasn't. I've got a memory of watching, I think it was Verona when Milan threw away the ninety title, they had uh, two plus cents on it. I watched that in my bedroom, but I didn't have an illegal feed from Italy, so it must have been on somewhere.
1: Uh, it might have been but the, I agree the with original you. It was, game, but I, was bought, I bought the Square Real specifically to watch Serie A football, and it was after... Well, and that's, that's how right, they 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 punted it. But
0: well, from the sounds and, uh, of it, Gary, you didn't have to buy it. It was already on Channel Four. You've made a mistake. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, from '90 90 to '92, it was on Sky. And I remember that as well. They had they had some really interesting pundits. They had people like Linacre, who we now
2: obviously associate with the BBC, was one of their pundits, Sooners. There was a lot. Of, generally, it was people who played in Italy, apart from Linica. It, it
1: was it was BSB um, rather yeah. than than Sky, and um, it was uh, and it. it that was that was a chance to watch foreign football. Now, I, I, again, I may be misremembering this, but I bought the Squarial um, rather than Sky because were you know BSB was a rival to Sky at the time um, because it would show Serie A football and I wanted to watch that on a Sunday afternoon because there wasn't that much choice, there wasn't that much sport on television then. But we. We've lost a bit of that kind of unknown, unknown quality. You know, 1978, Ozzy Ardiles wearing the number one on his Argentina ship. No, any of the Argentinian side. And we got Luque looking like Che Guevara. And you got Mario Kempis with that long hair and narrow, thin waist there. All homoeroticism <laughs> charging forward. But by 94 and certainly by 98, we kind of knew the players. Although, I... Italian 90 was the last tournament where... You're, the The knowledge you had about the players was really from a Panini album.
0: Yeah, I'd argue
2: uh, yeah, I agree, but I think 94, we didn't know that much certainly about, like I remember seeing like, Mark Hottiger in 94 being a revelation and then Keegan bought him and it turned out he wasn't a revelation, <laughs> but I know what you mean I think, yeah, ninety probably the last one because it was before people really got, they, all you had was like World Soccer as well I remember buying that religiously yeah. for the tournament. Well, and I don't, also the other thing you didn't, you only saw the players on the terms of the World Cup. So, we didn't know in 86 that Yosemar was actually a bit crap and would go back to Botafogo and end up with a cocaine problem, would hardly really play again. You know, I imagine he was always scoring those goals. Scalacci, we didn't know. Well, we did subsequently, but you know, I think he only ever scored like six goals in a season. Yeah, the
1: Italians didn't know
2: Scalacci. No, but it was, it was you're right, it was lovely. That, he, says, was, he, he was like, late into the squad story.
0: Scalacci, wasn't he? Wasn't that his story? Didn't he replace Rossi or something? I don't
2: know Rossi, was was and he would had He had a really good season, 89-90, and scored about like 15 goals, which is worth about 50 in those in days. In the
0: Italian, yeah, yeah.
2: But then after that, he hardly scored a goal. I know Yossimo was one who came in late because Leandro was thrown out over some drink scandal. So right. he was uncapped. You know, you get an uncapped right-back
0: scoring two incredibly good goals. Just And you're right, you will never get that again. And it's interesting, looking at this second round in the Italian 90, right? Cameroon versus Columbia, we've already talked about it. Every... every Every sort of story had a revelation about a player that you might not have known, really. Because you're like Czechoslovakia versus Costa Rica. Czechoslovakia, the second highest goal scorer in that tournament was Thomas Skuravi. And yeah. people never really talk about that. It's always about Lineker. It's always about Scalacci. But wedged in the middle of it was Thomas Skuravi, who was this big, mulletid thing. he scored four thing. in that match. Well, uh, three. It a hat-trick three. of headers, was it? It was a hat-trick of headers. That's what bumped someone it got, up. Someone scored a really good free kick as well. I forget. Kubik, maybe. He played at... Um, he was at Genoa. Genoa, wasn't he? With that Argentina Oliveira, was it? Aguilera, Aguilera. Aguilera, Uruguayan. Yeah, it was yeah. That,
2: yeah. They, were, they were a decent team. They put Liverpool out of
0: Europe
2: one year. Like you, you've, well. you've already
0: mentioned Brazil with Careca, and, and and I said, you know, God, they were so jammy Argentina in that game. West Germany, Netherlands, we talked about. Republic of Ireland, they were a revelation. Romania, they had Hanji. Mm. Was that Hanji's first tournament?
2: Yes, it was. He played at Wembley and hit the bar for about 90 yards in 85. But yeah, again, uh, he wasn't that well-known. Um, there were well.
1: some features about him because he had the nickname the Maradona of the Carpathians, it right, was yes. such a fantastic nickname that I think journalists just picked and up
0: I remember, I remember people literally writing <laughs> writing about him, that he could put sort of like side spin on the ball like a golfer. There was this kind of mythical belief yeah, that he had, he had this magic.
2: Eastern European football at the time, it was such a kind of... And it, now you look at it and think it was so cliche, but <laughs> there was a kind of lovely mystery to it all. They would always be described as crack teams, you know, like Dina McKee of the crack Eastern European <laughs> team, but like always, never any other part of Europe. And, then, no,
1: and Red Star Belgrade did actually win the uh, European, yeah, they did. didn't they?
0: Yeah, simultaneously won it and broke our hearts. To yes, come back to um, second round, you got yes, Italy versus Uruguay. Uruguay, you did a magnificent... Well, in a way, they were more, more interestingly for the different ways he could find to be very violent, mm. which was interesting. Spain, Yugoslavia. Now, Yugoslavia, um, of course, had Stojkovic, who was a total revelation in this tournament, wasn't he? Was he around before this? I don't remember. Again, I wouldn't. Well, I don't remember seeing him before this. So they wouldn't. He was no well known because the Red Sox were a good
2: side, but yeah, I think he he did the same for Marseille just before or just after. But yeah, he that Spain game, that first goal when he sent a defender off to the wrong fire and then just. Cushions the ball inside. It's so lovely. And then scores. A, yeah, actually, I think one young player of the tournament ahead of Gascoigne. Now, before you choke on outrage, I think it's because Gascoigne was twenty-three. So, I think definitely young. Yeah, I think Prozonetsky won. Looked
0: looked a proper player. One thing. You know, we, in, one thing we are going to talk about. Sorry, Gareth.
1: before you move on, Go on uh, that side. In eighty-nine, I was in Paris and um, I went to Parc des Princes to see. Uh, that Yugoslav team, because I don't know if you recall, but they were being talked up as mm-hmm. you know, the sort of the Hungary in the nineteen fifties. It was the greatest the team that never was. In, in the nineties, and I think it was a, it might have been a World Cup qualifier or it, or it was a friendly. It was it was one of those end of season games. It was in in May, and I went to Parc des Prince, It was very quiet, and uh, I saw as dull a nil nil game as you will ever <laughs> see in your life as France <laughs> played out nil nil against Yugoslavia, and it was such a disappointment because first of all I thought hey I'm at Parc des Princes watching France (laughs) Yugoslavia and it was a non-event and then these players I think Stojkovic played in that game and I'm pretty sure Prozineski did because he had blonde hair didn't he He was noticeable as blonde hair I expected him to play like Bernd Schuster um, but he didn't and um, so I I bear a little bit of a grudge against uh, that Yugoslav (laughs) side because they let me down in 1989 at Parc des Princes
0: and then, of course, just to finish it off, I mean, we probably will do a feature in a future episode about that Yugoslavia team that it never was because you had Savicevic and then they all got split yeah. up and all that kind of stuff. But um, the last point about... Boban. Uh, uh, yeah, Robert Yarni was in that team, wasn't he? No, Boban wasn't Boban really banned for punching a policeman?
1: <laughs> uh, I think That's the way the to
0: pitch, go. Was he going to go? Extraordinary, yeah,
1: extraordinary yeah. uh, that match. That that uh, some people say was the spark that lit the powder keg of the yeah. uh, internecine. Is that how you say the word, or is internecine the the conflict anyway? In the yeah, old yeah. Yugoslavia, is it split? And the final point uh, in the
0: second round, round we've got England hmm. obviously, and then they played Belgium. Who had the likes of uh, Shifo, who lovely, was often, lovely footballer who's <laughs> never remembered that great. Do you remember?
2: He
1: smoked oh, No, he the post. is remembered. He's remembered by Zinedine Zidane, who um, named his, oh, son his
0: Enzo. Son.
2: No, that not not was Francesco. Oh, Francesco! Yeah, Francesco. Yeah, yeah. God,
0: picked the wrong Enzo. Didn't? Um, I'd like to get that rumor started, though. That would be a great rumor to start. That he actually named him yeah, after Enzo be, Chifo. <laughs> Eric Edgar
2: as well played by Belgian. Yeah. That he was, Sheffield get signal from twenty five yards. Again, this was nobody used near outside the foot in English football in the eighties. It was like a free kick if you did. And he cut across and smacked it off the post against England. Jeez, yeah, he Shilton was,
0: was nowhere near it, was
2: he? He's
0: again, he's one who
2: I don't know if his club career was that good. I think he had a small spell at Inter. When he didn't do a lot in those days. You kind of judged on the Serie A, and then he did pretty well at Torino. But he's another one who a little bit like. Um, Lideker kind of it feel I might be wrong, it feels like he had his best moments in the World Cup. Because he was really good in eighty-six as well as a young kid. Yeah, yeah cracking. Fire. They were a good they they played really well again. England played well in that game, but I thought Belgium was slightly better
0: the really strong side. I always remember the keeper Prudom mainly because one, the name seemed really exotic and and, and strange, which it isn't. It's just Belgian in it. But he also had that big like sideshow bob curly hair, didn't he? So I always. Kinda... I think
1: he was the captain as well, and it was rare in those days for a keeper to be captain. I mean, Zoff was obviously for Italy for a while, but I think Prudom was captain of Belgium. I may be wrong in that. Late, maybe he later became the captain, okay. but they were. They were a good side. They had a ridiculous kit, though. Didn't they have a kit that had a kind of stripe that went down from the shirt into the shorts? Or am I thinking Wales 1978? I'm,
2: yeah. I'm
0: not sure, but I know Lee's going to bring us on to Scotland's shorts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, hooped shorts, ladies and gentlemen. Do you remember those? I think yes. they were the only team that ever had them, a short shorts with a hoop on. And so one thing, one theme,
2: actually, of this, um, the bit we just spoke about, there were a hell of a lot of number eights, kind of just authentic midfield playmakers. Chifo, Valderrama had you up to a point Gaza Italy had Janini I suppose four two three one kind of killed that position um, mm. but there were a lot of them in that tournament they were lovely to when you were a kid as well that kind of position is the most exciting I think obviously everyone wants to score goals but if you think you're kind of the kind of sued in you is always drawn towards players like that you think yeah when I grow up I'll be I'll be a bit subtler than everyone else and then you yeah.
1: I think, crap. Yeah, I think Rob, you you said to of me when I was talking about um, of
2: uh, Mulby, I think uh, at one point. Um, and the Danes weren't at Italian 90, were they? No, they they. That was the kind of the, the team. It was a slow death of that team, but it was completed. They lost. The deciding game in Romania actually lost 3-1 it was a bit i from memory there was something quite suspicious a couple of them spoke about but um, they were they weren't a good side by then anyway we'll They're have
1: really to do basically. denmark on in, in another we will definitely uh, be doing denmark because in of course you book, have yeah. literally written the book about it um <laughs> but
0: um that's rob not me malby, by the way
1: <laughs> malby uh malby i remember you saying everyone loves a head-up uh, ball player and uh, they were lots of of players who would carry the ball 10 yards with their head up and look for a pass and it is a romantic way to play the game you know you can either play the ratatata of the tiki taka and so on and that's that's good to watch but to see a man pick a ball up just inside the opposition half, run 10 yards, bring defenders out of position, uh, and then with head up, not looking at the ball, play a killer pass. It's a joy. Didn't um... Moby just... do
0: that versus Everton in the final 89 He moved forward, he, he looked yeah, one we way and pinged it, it, time, it to
2: the left, Can I say something on killer passes? So, Colombia's last game, they were playing West Germany. I think they had to draw to West through. It was quite competitive in third place. Played for a 0-0. West Germany scored in the 8 ninth minute. And Barry Davis, who I love, I think he's my favourite commentator ever, but he's in the middle of giving Valderrama a ferocious bollocking. <laughs> basically saying, on the biggest stage, he's let his country down, and the minute he does, Valderrama plays this amazing reverse pass, <laughs> puts the ring come through and he scores. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. And, but I think he, like, he owns up to it and says, ignore the commentator, but it's, because it's a classic Barry Davis bollocking. And it, the minute he does it, it's it's a stunning
0: pass. Like quick one two and then reverse pass, ring. Again, three, we'll, we'll three, probably three. talk about Barry Davis in a later comedy because I absolutely love the man. There's, there's I'll tell so you what, Rob, You're beginning about.
2: to look a bit like Barry Davis. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the glasses there. That, that's the nicest thing right. anyone can
0: <laughs> I, I hope that you've all enjoyed our little gamble through Italian ninety. I think there's gonna be stuff within that we'll come back talk that the we've identified we will come back and talk about in future episodes. If there's stuff that you'd like to let us know, you'd like us to Talk about and do a bit of research about so you can enjoy while you're listening to us. Then get in touch at Nessundormapod on Twitter, or there's contact at Nessundormapod.com, which is the website. Um, or there is a website, you can just go to Nessundormapod.com and have a look on there. Uh, so that will leave Italia 90 there. Uh, I was going to talk about the kits, but we haven't got time. The kits were lovely. Um, but we'll move on to now to players that we really miss. I've even got an 80 soundtrack for this, everyone. Are you ready? <music> Oh, I cut that off too soon. Never mind. That, no, was, didn't. No, that, didn't. that was a joke. Everyone loves a bit of John Waits missing you, don't they? It could have been worse. I could have gone for Chris DeBerg's version of missing. Oh. Imagine how bad that would have been. Yeah. So anyway, let's talk about plays really because It's really about the plays that we love and we miss and we wish we could see again. Um, shall I start this off? Yeah, go on. Uh, for me, it's, I'm just in case you don't know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm an Oldham Athletic fan, but weirdly, the player that I love the most going up... Roger Palmer. Was, <laughs> hey. <laughs> You seem to be not giving much respect with your tone there, Rob, and I don't like it, to be honest. I loved Andy Ritchie, actually, at that time. No, actually, Rick Holden was my favourite of that of, of that uh, vintage. But, it, but no, it was, that's not my favourite I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about Peter Beardsley while we were talking about Italianality. I absolutely adored Peter Beardsley. Let's talk about the reason why. One, magnificently consistent player, okay? A goal every three games, everywhere he played. Everywhere he played. Even at the age of 36, pretty much, he was doing that. Um, he basically made everybody play with look a lot better. He also must be the ugliest and least photogenic player to have his own computer game. <laughs> Peter Beardsley's international football. Here's a question for you: When he went to when he went to uh, Newcastle at the age of thirty two, because Everton sold him, Gary didn't they? They did, for yeah. 1.5 million, and pa- and paired up with Andy Cole, they scored. Is th- was there a better strike partnership in the night one season? I'm talking about just over one season. A better strike partnership than Beardsley and Cole. 66 I, I, goals they scored. I would say York and
2: Cole, but that's, that's probably a biased, fair shout. But I know what it's you mean. York and Cole were bloody good. Rather the point you make about Beardsley making people better, I think is really important because some players who actually don't do well in strike partnership, Michael Owen was one, and I'm not quite sure why. Whereas if you talk to people like Lideker and Cole about Beardsley, they, well, not that I have, but <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard I've heard them on TV and they are gushing about how good he was, how selfless he was, how intelligent and particularly kind of being able to read their runs, you know, like he would almost, make, not make run for them, but he would kind of yeah. persuade them to run it up because they knew where the ball was going and so on. Yeah, yeah, just a lovely, and also one of those players who I think opposing fan couldn't really dislike, you know, yeah. childish ridicule of his haircut and stuff. Um, except if you had, if you had to say, but even as a United fan, even when he's at Liverpool, you couldn't dis- and I, I detested a lot of Liverpool players <laughs> in a childish way, but you couldn't really dislike Beersley. He just seemed like a lovely fella. Beautiful player. If you talk, about he was, up, a, talk He about was a up.
1: lovely player because, I, I mean, obviously I saw quite a lot of him because he played at Everton for two or three seasons and what, what I felt about is that he had tremendous balance he could go either way off either foot he had a shot which required no backlift whatsoever absolutely, so yeah. it always came yeah, as a absolutely. surprise and he would he would find that that killer pass he would he would make good decisions he would shoot when it was right to shoot he would pass when it was right to pass and he would be kicked all over the place and he would bounce up and say, give the ball back to me. I mean, he was he was loved at uh, at Everton, which is not often the, the case. Although I'm going to talk about another player who crossed the park from uh, Anfield to to Goodison later. It wasn't always the case, but uh, but Beardsley was uh, was a tremendous player. He did get some criticism now and again, but um, as I used to say, if Beardsley was at his absolute best in every game, he would be Lionel Messi because at his best, he was really fantastic. He would go out of games on occasion. You know, he, couldn't, he couldn't drop back and pick the ball up off the midfield. That wasn't really his game. He didn't spray 40-yard, 50-yard balls. What he did is he, he carried the ball in that last third of the field. He made defenders commit, and then he found the pass, or he found a jink to be able to put the ball in the back of the net. He seldom shot the ball over the bar. He would pass the ball into the net more often than shoot the ball into the net. But um, he, was, he was a, a, a tremendous example of uh, a player who made the, the most of, of already quite prodigious gifts. He was probably the closest player to a kind of Kenny Dalgleish in terms of, of his ability to think two or three steps ahead of everyone else and his ability to use his balance to gain that yard of, pay, of space that you need in order to make a difference.
0: Yeah, and he had that wonderful... He, he had one trick. He used to open up his right foot and drag yes. the ball in. And it would just completely bamboozle people. It was like Chris Waddle's step over. No matter how many times he did it, people fell for it. But I suppose there's something to that, isn't there? There is actually a vi- you mentioned Messi there, Gary. There is a video on on our Twitter page actually, but it's also on YouTube, um, which is Basley versus Messi. And people do it. somebody's built a video comparing very similar goals they've both scored. What's noticeable more than anything, obviously, Messi does look slightly more classy. But what's noticeable is that Beersley's doing all of this in a ploughed field. <laughs> <laughs> that That's the biggest thing that you notice, that he's doing that kind of pitter-patter-pitter-patter pitter, patter score thing in the middle of this absolute disgrace of a surface compared to what Messi's doing it on.
1: Well, we forget, I think, sometimes that right into the 90s, um, pitchers for well over half the season were... were... You know they were they were now you there would be a disgrace at Hackney Marshes, never mind in the top flight of the game and when people say that you know some of these players didn't have the technique of the of the players today, um maybe they didn't, but they had a different kind of technique that would kill a ball and then carry a ball over as you say essentially a mud a mud and
2: when defenders had license to commit g b h and get away with it for the first time, and then second time might be yellow, yeah so I think those the pitches and the tackling makes it so hard to compare Messi and Maradona or Ronaldo and Maradona because yeah. it's always playing a different sport. It is. Yeah, I agree.
0: And the thing, the um, last part about busy indicates he always seemed to be treated quite badly for the period, busy. He, he always seemed to get People seem to think, well, we don't need you anymore. And I suppose the biggest example I've got of that is that he lost his starting place at Liverpool to Ronnie Sodding Rosenthal. <laughs> that seemed like a better option at the time. And uh, you know, And that's the kind of biggest example I've got. And, then the, and, and Well, they sold him to Everton at 28, I think. I mean, it was just. A million pounds, crazy. yeah. For Ronnie Rosenthal, because they wanted Ronnie Rosenthal in there. And then he was top scorer at Everton in his first season. It wasn't a great time for Everton, that was yeah, it? Yeah, but... probably
1: only needed to score 10. To <laughs> I, think he was, I think he was but 12. He carried, goals or carried the side along with one or two others. Two and you know, he, he played every game, he was never injured. He was just, just fantastic.
0: He was quicker than people give him credit for as well.
1: Very quick over five yards. wasn't so much man for running twenty. He wasn't. He couldn't really throw the ball over the top and expect Beardsley to run onto it in the way that a kind of uh, uh, Lineker could or dare one say Stuart Barlow, who then would hit the corner flag with his shot. But um, <laughs> he was he was great over sort of uh, ten yards or thereabouts, and, what, and I, very good over one yard. I mean, John Robertson was the best player I ever saw over one yard, but Beardsley was pretty good. over Do you over remember one what Stuart
0: well. Barlow's nickname was, Gary? <laughs>
1: Well he was a headless chicken, is it going Stuart, to be something
0: like that. Stuart Barndor.
1: Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he it with a banjo, yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's the yeah, we'll leave Beasley there. Has anybody else got some uh, player they want to talk about that they miss? Go on, Rob. Go on, Gary, you go. going.
1: Oh, okay. Well, um I, I miss I miss Kevin Sheedy because he was a fantastic player. Obviously, he was part of the great mid-80s Everton side who never had the chance to explore their their potential, but they were a great side, believe me. But there are other reasons why I I love Kevin Sheedy is that he never really looked like a footballer at all. You know, you see these sleek athletes these days. I mean, Sheedy was about five eight five nine. He had bandy bow legs he never came out and warmed up or anything like that and (laughs) i mean as i once said if he was if he was standing next to you on the bus on the way to the the match you would never notice him at all um but as soon as the ball went onto his left foot and his right foot wasn't just for standing on but his left foot was a wand that could do anything and an example of doing anything was one of the greatest moments i ever witnessed and i still think this is unique in in football. I said can't remember anybody else who's. Thierry Henry almost did it, but he did it differently, in against against Ipswich, and I think a cup game, and it is on YouTube. Um, free kick about 20 22 yards out, so the wall was uh, about five yards or so, six yards into the penalty box, and it wasn't like today where walls are sent back ten yards and they use the spray paint. It was probably about nine yards back, if that. And uh, Sheedy ran up with his left foot and he put it in the, I think the first one he put in the top right-hand corner, went across the wall into the top right-hand corner, into a postage stamp. The referee pulled them back because there was some reason, maybe maybe one of the Everton players had pulled the man out of the wall and so on. So Sheedy spotted the ball up again, ran up, and he put it in the other corner. Now, to do that... I mean, I would just have walked off and think nothing I do in football will ever top that. But to do that, to put the ball in one corner, be asked to take the free kick again and then put it in the other corner, what what a moment of genius. His other moment of, of genius is, uh, of course, at, at Anfield at a time when Everton were beginning to usurp uh, Liverpool um, as the best team in, as you said, and the best team in the country, champions in 85 and 87, <laughs> where Sheedy, who had played at Anfield and couldn't get in, to the side, they preferred Ronnie Whelan to Kevin Sheedy. Now, obviously, I would prefer Kevin Sheedy to Ronnie Whelan, but that's a tight call because Ronnie Whelan was a great player. Is that, um, again, he scored at, uh, at Anfield in the derby, and as he's running away to celebrate, he gives the V's to the cop and then tops it off by going to the Kemlin Road as he's running past and gives the V's to the Kemlin Road as well. Now, the Twitter outrage these days would be extraordinary, but I think to their credit, uh, the Liverpool fans booed for a bit, but they they enjoyed the uh, humour and they enjoyed the fact that a, that a, a returning player could, could give him the V's having scored for Everton, and I don't think his standing with uh, with Liverpool fans went, went down as a... A result, but um, I'll just give you one or two stats about uh, about uh, Shiri. He was a he was a wide midfield player. He wasn't a, a, a kind of um, reverse uh, winger who who came in off the wrong foot and would have uh, would have shots. He played as wide midfield. He didn't really tackle, but he got back and he blocked and so on. But he was he was not a, a Ronaldo type forward who cut in from the wing and was shooting all the time. But in seven seasons, he scored ten league goals per year. Uh, over those uh, seven seven seasons, that's pretty good, isn't it? That kind of output, and he also must have been top of assists because the number of balls he put on the heads of Sharp and Gray, and even on the head of Adrian Heath, who like uh, Tim Cahill was a small man, but um, scored his his headers. But he just got so much out of what appeared to be so little. Seldom headed the ball, bandy legs, no pace, but what a player! and we don't see them anymore i think the athletes have kind of crowded them out mm. but um but what a player sheedy was and of course he went on to be and i think still is a, a coach at uh, at at Everton and um he's had a cancer scare and survived that and um there are lots of players one could pick in those in those uh, Everton fans from that that team but um Sheedy was, uh, was fantastic, and the last thing I'll say is that uh, in the European Cup, Cup final in Rotterdam, both my brothers and my father were there, but I didn't go, I think I was doing finals or something at university, but um, there's a, in the last minute, there's a chance comes to Sheedy, and he doesn't just hit it in the back of the net, he does one of those shots which hits the underside of the crossbar and then bulges the net, because if he had the chance to do something with style, boy, did he do it with style. Thank you, Kevin Sheedy. Your name will live forever.
0: (laughs) I I
2: always think Riven's a great volume as well. Is that fair? Yes,
1: it was. It was, it was just a wand of a left foot. I think what it was, and we didn't know so much, I think, then, because we didn't have the quality of cameras that they do now, but I think he was one of those players, and there are a few of them, who kick the middle of the ball every time they kick it. So it doesn't look like it's any effort, and yet he could hit a ball 50, 60 yards. Um, he could put the ball, say, into postage stamps. He was he was a player who hit the ball under a wall at free kicks when he, when they were started to jump up in the air and so on. And I think part of it was the timing of kicking the middle of the ball over and over again.
0: Yeah, hey, of course. Going back to both Beersley and Sheedy, he played at Italian ninety, of course.
1: Yes, Sheedy played for Ireland, and uh, you know he, he had a he had a successful, I think, international career, but um, it wasn't as stellar as his uh, club career uh, by any means.
0: Yeah, forty six caps, for Ireland.
1: Yeah, he was. Just, he was. He, he was just because he was also Welsh. I think he could have played for Wales. I think he yeah, was he born was born in Wales. Yeah, yeah
0: Mid Wales. Yeah, I think he lived not far from where I live now for a little while. Yeah, and
1: I, think, I think that's. Uh, I think that that's right. It was a shame that uh, he wasn't English. I mean, there were lots of of players that we could say that about, and perhaps we'll. We'll do some of the players who uh, who perhaps we would have wanted to play for England in the 80s and 90s, but instead were playing for other nations, as is their absolute uh, absolute <laughs> to it. right, of course. But uh, I would love to have seen Kevin well, Sheedy play for England.
0: There's a total shit store about people playing for Wales now at this present moment, isn't there? But we won't go into yes,
1: it. Yes, indeed.
0: Have you got anybody, Rob, or are you, or are you leaving it for this week? Um, oh, I, I can do someone if you like.
2: Want him? I haven't actually thought of anyone. Um, oh, I don't need to then. I- it's okay if you're not... If you're not- I'll oh, do some quickly because I know Gary loves talking about Rory Keane.
0: <laughs> it could have been him um, on Paul Stolls, yeah.
2: I, I was, yeah, they're the two. <laughs> there are some, I mean, probably in terms of sheer kind of entertainment, I miss him like Laetitia, but Gary's kind of covered that the whole idea of the athletes taking over. Just one quick thing I love about Laetitia is that he used to go to McDonald's pretty much every morning on the way to training. <laughs> and get, I think it was a sausage and egg McMuffin. And one day he got two but he had too many and he almost had a fainting fit during training. <laughs> It's In His autobiography, For You, which is a really funny book. I've not um, read that one. I must put that one it's up. Really, there's one other great story about. Um, sorry, I'm going to go off on one here. Sorry? They were away on. The, in fact, there were two more. There was One They were away on a pre season trip somewhere. I forget where. And this is when Shearer and Ruddock were at the club. And um, Shearer was in the shower. And Ruddock and a couple of other players went and steal his uh, minibar. <laughs> and they steal. I don't, I don't know where. They stole it and ran out. And as we Shearer came flying out of the bath bollock naked <laughs> Ruddock dropped it in a panic and apparently sure like stamped all over it, and Letitia says his foot was basically hanging off and they had to take him for an operation and he said I can't ever look back at that and think how different English football might have been. <laughs> and just One last one I think it was the 86-87 season and they were stuck in their position they couldn't go higher or lower going into the last game when they were away at Coventry so they had like a few drinks the night before and apparently when they got to the bar in the morning of the game Jimmy Case was still there and um from the night before, and then until after about twenty minutes, he took a corner. Jimmy Case, at the com- on one end, and Coventry broke, and Case just had a sit down on a wall. He was like talking to the Coventry <laughs> fans because he was in such a state, and he was subbed a couple of minutes later. Uh, can you imagine that? Can you imagine I just you I just want,
1: no. Can I just give you a couple of quick things about Letizia? Is that um, I think it was the season before Shearer left Southampton. Um, I remember talking to people because I think I'm writing this. It may have been the season before that, but there was a season when Alan Shearer scored four goals in 30 odd games for Southampton, and uh, uh, Letizia scored 23. <laughs>
2: Shearer, um, wasn't, Shearer wasn't prolific at all at Southampton. No, no, he apart, wasn't. Apart from a hat trick on debut, but obviously. Dalglish and Ferguson must have seen plenty of him. Again, it's hard to know because we, we barely have seen Southampton. So when people signed him, all you would look at is his goal record and think, really?
1: Yeah, that's what I, I thought at the, t- at kind the time. The but they were, they, were, they were right and I was wrong. But the, the other thing is I was at the Dell, the old Dell, and um, it was towards the end of Letizia's career. And uh, it was a corner. It was obviously a pre-planned move. And there was a corner, and Letizia was hanging back on the edge of the penalty uh, area. The corner swept over, and it was misdirected. So Shearer had to, uh, it's not Shearer, Letizia had to backpedal maybe five or six yards Uh, to kind of the edge of the D. And he side footed a volley, and it was a proper volley, not one of these they call volleys now where the ball bounces before it's just up in the air. He side footed the volley onto the crossbar that went at such a speed. And I've never seen a player do it before or since, but again, I think it's that balance, the the eye-foot coordination and confidence that um, that allowed him to do that. And it was that, you often got it in, a, in, a, in an away crowd in particular because the away fans are obviously sectioned off. There was a moment of kind of jaw-dropping silence as the the bar was still rattling, and we're saying, "Did we just see what we just saw?" And then, of course, as an away fan, you don't know whether you should applaud or not. And I think some of us did applaud, and some of us didn't. But um, he was an extraordinary talent, and uh, in some ways, a, a unique footballer. But maybe we need to do unique footballers another time.
0: We will. One thing I you mentioned the Dell always. The one thing that you know what always jumps into my mind when people mention the Dell is the way the nets didn't bulge the ball bounced back out. For some reason, I think because the seats were so close, they had a really shallow net. and It, it was pulled a really quite, tight ground. And it was pulled quite tight. So every time a ball went in, it kind of bounced straight back out. Like you know, like it hit a sort of trampoline or a tennis net. Were, I always, you,
2: were you there when Oldham played? In the League Cup?
0: No. I've not been, no, I've been there. I was there when we... <laughs> I, I was there for when they came to us, that last game of the season. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. there then, but it was... No, I've not been down to the Dell.
1: But it's um, one of the one of the extraordinary things about the Dell is that one end had a very diagonal set of seats so at one end you had kind of two rows you had sort of A1 I and B1 right, yeah. but by the time it got to the other end you had kind of Z Z Z 29 or something cuz <laughs> cuz the number of rows increased in a kind of diagonal as uh, because of, you know it was called the Dell because it was in a valley and it was on slopes, not quite so much as Charlton is on slopes, but it was uh, it was on slopes there. But it was extraordinary looking at one end because you didn't catch this on the telly at all and seeing this very strange sort of stand with this, these diagonal seats.
0: One well, last point about Laetitia, and Wayne Rooney always makes me think of this. When you looked at Latissier, you knew that probably within about four hours of retirement he put two stone on. <laughs> and I have a feeling that Wayne Rooney's going to do that he'll be two stone heavy within a week of actually finishing playing <laughs> professional football I think Letizia was doing it
2: in his last couple of years to be fair to him. He's like, oh,
0: he's just brilliant
2: the way he lived his life the fact he didn't want to go to a bigger club because he was just happy there's so much to admire, and for a two year period he's just like golden a month was just yes. Yeah. The main, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean, older some list, uh, listeners may may think of uh, the likes of Dennis Bergkamp, and in, in some ways, I think uh, Bergkamp and Letizia were the same kind of player. I think Bergkamp was, was probably, a, well, certainly a, a notch above and was a, a better athlete, but that ability to, to pick the ball up and, and do extraordinary things, um, there aren't that many who could do it, but Letizia could do it. There are very few Englishmen who could do it, but Letizia could.
2: Yeah, Bergkamp was a much better part, I would say. Letizia was yes, a so. good part, but Bergkamp is like the whole geometry and everything. is amazing. Yeah. But, but they yeah. had,
1: had a goal of the month where, where it would be, yeah, be deciding which of the Camp and Letizia goals were, <laughs> were going to go in because they were obviously going to be first and second.
0: Well, yes. on that note, I think we will draw this first episode of Nestle Dorma to a close. Oh, uh, I was
1: just beginning to enjoy it. I know, lots and lots <laughs> of
0: stuff to talk about. So many other things that we want to talk about. If you have been listening out there, Please subscribe, please leave us a review, please tell your friends. Get in touch with us at Ness and Dorma Pod. We will be back uh, as best we can on a weekly basis, so you should get used to, to us invading your lives in a gentle, whimsical, and hopefully knowledgeable and enjoyable way. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll speak to you next week. Take care. Cheers,
2: Bye. guys. Cheers, chaps. That was fun.